Good morning. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, that we can open up your word and learn how to grow in grace and knowledge of you. May we be wise. May we understand what you've said and be able to apply it to real situations that we face in our lives. Pray that you be with Eric as he teaches us and help us to pay attention and to learn and grow. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Eric, turn it over to you. Amen. Well, thanks, Bob. It's good to see you, and I'm glad to be with you all here teaching the Word. Now, today we're going to continue on in the book of Joel, chapter 2. And notice the title, It's Only Those Who Repent and Believe That Are Saved. That's the big topic of this section. And I want you to remember that the last time we left off in Joel, it was really Joel chapter 2, verse 11, where Joel asked the question, he says, the day of the Lord is severe and it's awesome. Who can endure it? And the answer to that question, of course, is only those who repent and believe. Those are the only ones that are going to be able to endure the judgment or the wrath of God. And so we know that this is essential to our Christian walk. In fact, Hebrews 11:6 6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so this is something that in Joel, I think it shows us that salvation has always been by faith. There's never been a different plan. It's not as if we went from works in the Old Testament to salvation by faith alone in the New Testament. No, it's always been by faith alone. Now, let's see this call to repentance in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Listen to what Joel says. He says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Now I want you to notice here at the beginning, the command by God is for the people of Judah to return. Notice that in red twice. The turn the term return is shuv, and it simply means to turn from something and to return back to God in this instance, and that's the idea of repentance. In fact, later on in this message, I'll be giving you a bunch of terms that are used in both the Old and the New Testament for repentance. But here, I want you to notice that this repentance that's being called for is something that's to be done with their whole heart. And what that shows us is that this can't be a superficial repentance, that it has to be something that really bears fruit. Now, I want you to remember, most of you probably remember this text from the New Testament, uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Just jot that down if you're a note taker. Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Remember, that's where John the Baptist, as he was preaching repentance to the Jews, told them to bear fruit in keeping, or excuse me, bear, uh, yeah, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's how he phrased it. Well, what does it mean to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Because I think that ties in very nicely to what God is saying to the people of Judah here in Joel chapter 2. Well, remember, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance has to do with two things. It means that we have to turn to God in both our doctrine and our deeds, both what we believe and what we do or how we obey. Now, let me give you some evidence of that. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2, verses 6, and then also verse 15. Please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 6 and 15. Now, the reason I want you to turn there is this passage came to my mind. It's a good illustration of how both doctrine and deeds are essential for people to have a heart that's right with God. And you see here as... Jesus is addressing through the Apostle John the church at Ephesus. There are some good things about the church of Ephesus. They didn't have the doctrine and deeds by and large of the Nicolaitans. Listen to what he says. Please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. And notice what he says here. He says, This is to Ephesus, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So notice whatever the Ephesian church had going for them, it was that they hated the same deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans followed a false teacher named Nicolaus, and he's actually mentioned in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. And more than likely, what Nicolaus was teaching 
was a form of uh, kind of an early incipient form of a libertine Gnosticism. And the idea in that is that your body doesn't matter because anything physical is bad, everything spiritual is good. So because your body doesn't matter, you can engage in sexual immorality. That's what he ended up teaching. Why? Because your, your body is irrelevant. And so the actions followed the deeds, excuse me, the deeds of the false teachers followed after their doctrine. Their false doctrine led to wayward deeds. Now turn your uh, Bible to verse 15 of Revelation 2. So just nine verses later, notice the problem in Ephesus. He says, so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So notice you have the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You have the doctrine and the deeds. Now again, Nicolaus was teaching your body doesn't matter. So therefore you can engage in sexual immorality. You can eat food that's offered to idols. And so their wayward doctrine led to immoral lifestyle. So what true repentance is, is always a turning first in right belief, turning from idolatry, turning from false religion, and turning to God on his terms, which is his doctrines, the doctrines that come ultimately from Christ and his apostles. Okay, so no one can truly claim to have a repentant heart if they're not following the doctrines from Christ and his apostles. People can claim all sorts of repentance, but if they don't believe the doctrines that come from Christ and the apostles, it's not true repentance. It's not repentance from the heart. It's not repentance that's bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, as John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Now, we see this reiterated. Notice in the underlines, they were to rend their heart and not their garments. And again, this illustrates that the repentance God was looking for, it couldn't be merely a superficial one. It really had to be from the heart. And remember, the heart isn't the seat of emotions only. The heart was really the center of the thought life for the Jew. It was the center, yes, of emotions, but also the will and the intellect. I like to put those three things together with the heart. It's the will, the intellect, and the emotions. So the center of thought life, that's the idea. Now, I want to illustrate this from a New Testament passage. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 7 verses 14 through 16. Please turn your Bibles there to Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 16. Now remember, as you're turning to Mark 7, verses 14 through 16, that's where you have Jesus in this hot dialogue, this debate with the religious leaders of Israel who were complaining by the fact that Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands before they would eat. Now, was there anything in the Mosaic Covenant that required you to wash your hands before you would eat? No. But they did this to be scrupulous. This was a man-made rule. But what Jesus wants them to understand is that's not what makes a person right with God, and that's not where sin comes from. It's nothing external that can defile, defile you with God, as it were. He says, really, the sin comes from the heart. Notice what he says, Mark 7, 14 through 16. It says, after he called the crowd to him again, this is Jesus, it says, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. So he's talking about food. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So notice Jesus saying it's what comes out of us that defiles us. The reason why we sin isn't because of some external force upon us. It's because of the waywardness of our heart, because of our sin nature. And so that's what needs to be changed. And that's something that only God can change. In fact, we've seen evidence of that in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, where God is the one who has to grant repentance. Okay, so again, verse 13 is showing us this can't be something superficial. It has to be from the center of our thought life. We really have to change in doctrine and deeds. That's the idea. Now, notice below then the underline, he says, now return to the Lord your God. Here we are given the reason why we should expect good results if we repent and believe. 
The reason we should expect good results is based on the character of God. Notice he's gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in loving kindness. Now, I love this term loving kindness. I mentioned this last time, the term cassette. It is the term for grace or mercy, and it is the basis for how you and I are saved. Our salvation is dependent upon the character of God. So the idea of repenting and returning to the Lord is only efficacious because God is gracious. He's the one who's willing to receive his people if they will just turn to him. And this is something that he revealed all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. One of the keys, I think, to interpreting the book of Joel is if you read Joel, and I'm talking specifically of chapters 1 and 2, and you have Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28 open, you'll see, oh, yep, this is where God promised he would do this. And sure enough, in Joel, he's doing it. God promised that if the Israelites would repent, that he would be their God, he would heal their land, and he would save them. And again, it's all based on his character and who he is. Now, let me turn to the next verse here, Joel 2.14, where we see God's anticipated response. Notice Joel continues, he says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now, first of all, notice here the term turn. There's the term shuv. Now here it's being used of God. Perhaps God will turn. In fact, notice it says also that he will perhaps relent. Now, it's an interesting term here for relent. The term is nakam, which means to have a change of interesting questions I think this text raises is if you recall, just jot this verse down, Numbers 23:19. Numbers 23:19, God says of himself that he is not a man, that he should repent or change his mind, nakam. But here, Joel is saying that perhaps he will relent and change his mind, Nakam. So there seems to be an apparent contradiction. On the one hand, in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he ever changes his mind, Nakam. But here, he may change his mind. So how do you reconcile those things? Now, why am I doing this? Just because I want to reconcile every apparent contradiction in the Bible? No. Because you have false teachers like Greg Boyd, who will use texts like this in Joel 2.14 and say, ah, God obviously does change his mind. He obviously doesn't have the future all laid out. He doesn't know the future. He does change his mind. He does not know the future. They'll use texts like this. But what you have to understand is I think the way around the apparent contradiction is that what we really have going on here is what's called an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is simply a figure of speech where God likens himself so that we can understand who he is to being a man. A good example of this would be in Isaiah 40, verse 12, it says that God measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Well, wait a minute. God is spirit. Those who are to worship him are to worship him in spirit and truth, as Jesus said in John chapter 4. And so how do we understand that God would have a physical hand that he could measure out the waters? Well, that's an anthropomorphism. It's using language that you and I understand so that we can say, oh, of course, he's the creator. He has the power to even know how much water there is in the oceans and the lakes, etc. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. That's the idea. But if we press it so far as to say, well, God must physically have a hand that's so big because after all, he can fit all the waters in it. We're missing the point. In the same way, this idea of relenting, look on the screen in Joel 2.14, doesn't mean that God changes his mind as, or as capricious as human beings are. But rather, what it means is that God really does fulfill his promises. Just as he promised in Deuteronomy 28, that if the Israelites would repent, he would heal them. He would bring them back to their land. He would get rid of their enemies. He would restore their crops. He's faithful to that. He's faithful to his word. That's the idea. So the idea isn't that he's capricious or somehow he just changes his mind willy-nilly, but rather he acts according to his word that he has promised. 
God in the Mosaic covenant promised his people, if you break covenant with me, I'll judge you. He's faithful to that. He also says, if you repent and return to me, I'll be faithful and heal your land. He's faithful to that. God is faithful. That's again, what Joel is building this expectation uh, upon. The expectation that God will heal them isn't based on who they are, but on who he is. Now, I want you to remember, notice here this phrase that we have in blue. We have the expected blessing that God is going to give. If they return to God, God in turn is going to relent and he's going to leave a blessing. Notice on the screen, then in blue, the blessing that's expected is given. It says, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Why is that important? Well, remember, we learned that the whole purpose of the locust judgment in Joel chapter 1 was to remove their crops so that they could no longer worship God. And it's as if God was saying, look, if you're going to live like the pagans, don't fool yourself into thinking somehow you can come and worship me. I'm going to take even your means of worship away so that you can't do that. Remember, the law required a grain offering and a drink offering with their, their sacrifices, both in the morning and in the evening. And so when God sent the locust plague, he took that away from them. So they couldn't even worship God as he commanded them. So the greatest blessing that they could ever be given is the ability to worship God as he commanded them. That's, that's what they're looking forward to. And that's, I think, really the most significant thing to them. Now, notice the logic of the text. Notice when he says in the very beginning, who knows whether he will not turn and relent. Joel seems to be suggesting that he may or may not do this. But I want to ask the question, what clue do we have that Joel does anticipate that God will, in fact, heal them? Well, the clue that we have is what we found earlier, back in verse 13, that God is gracious, that he's compassionate, that he's slow to anger, that he's full of loving kindness or cassette. And so already Joel has said, look, we should expect that he's going to do these things. Why? Because that's the kind of God that he is. By the way, this phrase where it says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent, that is identical to Jonah chapter 3, verse 9, where the king of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh says the identical term, the identical phrase that who knows whether or not God will turn and relent. If we as the Ninevites repent and turn from the evil that we're doing, perhaps God will turn and relent. So I want you to see that this is something that's been repeated also by the prophet Jonah in chapter three, verse nine. Okay, so what we have in the text here is that if Israel turns, that is, they return from their sin, well, then God is going to turn and return to bless them. And what you have then is that Israel can worship God. That's the order that Joel is putting forward here for us. Now, let's continue on here in verses 15 through 16, where we see that repentance really trumps other concerns. And what's interesting is I look at our political culture today, and there's a lot of different concerns that people have, but very rarely do you have people thinking to themselves on any given day that the greatest need that they have is to repent and to believe the gospel. That's something that the unregenerate don't often think about, but it still is the greatest need that everyone still has today. Now, as I say that, I'm not claiming that when my, my car is low on gas, I simply just pull over and pray and say, well, Lord, I repent and everything will be fine. No, I go to get gas in my car. In other words, I know there's things that we have to do in this life and there's concerns that are real. But the greatest concern for every single human being is to repent and to turn from idolatry and to come to God on his terms. We see that illustrated here in verses 15 through 16. Notice Joel says, blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, Proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Now, dear ones, notice in the beginning, it says, blow a trumpet in Zion. 
remember, this links us back to Joel chapter 2, verse 1, where you had the blowing of the trumpet to sound the alarm of an impending army that will come down from the north, namely the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians. Okay, well, now Joel is linking us to this, but now the blowing of the trumpet is to call people to consecrate a fast and a solemn assembly. Okay, so he's linking, hey, if you will have this fast, and by the way, remember, let's look at the term fast here. The term fast in the Old Testament, remember, there's only one commanded fast in the Old Testament. That's the Day of Atonement. All right. Um, there's no commanded fast under the New Covenant. But the fast was supposed to be the outward expression of the inward reality of re a repentant heart by the Israelites. So the idea of consecrating a fast has to do with repentance. And the proclaiming of the solemn assembly is for national repentance. So now the trumpet is blowing not to warn them of the coming enemy, but in light of this coming judgment, it's a call for them to repent. That's the idea. It's summoning them for this national repentance. Now, what's interesting, let's talk about the solemn assembly. The solemn assembly that normally would be associated with the people of Judah and Israel was the one found in Leviticus 23 um, during the feast of the Feast of, uh, not Tabernacles, but, uh, oh, what's it called? The Feast of Pentecost. That's what I wanted to say. The Feast of Pentecost. Now, the Feast of Pentecost was very important. Why? Because they were going to be celebrating their harvest. That's where they celebrated their harvest and where they get the ingathering of all of their crops. The irony is here they're having a solemn assembly where they're commemorating a loss of their crops. Okay, so normally they would be having the solemn assembly celebrating the fact that they've got crops. Now they're calling a solemn assembly in light of the fact that they have no crops. And so there's a bitter irony that's present here. I think that's an irony that we are certainly supposed to see. Now, notice he says, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children. This is a national repentance that's being called for. It's not just some of the people, it's all of the people. And in one sense, only Judah and Israel could be a nation that could turn back to God by keeping his covenant. Now, why do I say that? Because Israel was unique. One of the issues that I have today that I've seen oftentimes is people will pray for the repentance of America. And while certainly we can repent as individuals and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, how do we as America repent and return to a covenant that God has somehow given us as a nation? Remember, foundational to our worldview is Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 10, where all of the nations are seen really as pagan nations that were given by God to the angelic realm as an inheritance to them. Okay, but there was one nation that alone belonged to God, and that was Israel. And Israel, therefore, uniquely was given a covenant, a Mosaic covenant. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 19, Israel was commanded to have cities of refuge. Now, if America were to repent today, as some teachers like Jonathan Kahn call us to, does that mean that we have to have cities of refuge? What, what, what covenant do we repent unto? Well, certainly we're under the new covenant, that is the whole world. But what my point is this. We don't repent as a nation per se, like Israel did, but individuals within America are commanded to repent and believe. And when they repent and believe, they're added to the church, the body of Christ. And so repentance isn't a national institution where we're to return back to the Mosaic Covenant like Israel did. That was unique. Israel here is being called on the carpet to go back to their Mosaic covenant and to keep covenantal faith. What repentance looks like for America is turning from unbelief and turning to God on his terms, which is faith alone in Christ alone. Think about Nineveh. Nineveh did repent. They repented from the evil that they did, but they didn't repent and turn to the Mosaic covenant. They weren't bound by holding cities of refuge, for example, in their own nation. Okay, only Israel was. 
Now, I want you to see that so important is this repentance that the whole nation is to be involved. In fact, notice it says, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Remember, in ancient Israel, the wedding happened in two parts. There was the betrothal, and then there was the consummation. And the consummation would last seven days. In other words, in most reputable sources that I've seen, you'll have the groom and his bride within their wedding chamber for a seven-day period. That's a whole week. Okay, and that's what they were consuming. Now, there would be food brought to them. In fact, that was the role of the best man. Now, what's interesting is notice it says here, let the bridegroom come out of his room, Kether, and the bride out of her bridal chamber, the Kupa. Even though there's two different terms for room and chamber, they're probably synonymous here. In other words, it's not that the groom is in one room and the bride is in another. It's that they're together. They're together in the bridal chamber. That's the idea. They're synonymous. And so, so significant is repentance that even the brides and the grooms are to forget about their marriage and repent and come to faith in the Lord. That's how significant repentance is. Now, how many of you know of anybody that said, you know, we really put our marriage on hold. Why? Well, because we need to repent and believe the gospel. Okay. It's probably not going to happen today, but that's the significance of being right with God. Now, think about, we just saw one of the major parties in the United States hold a convention. Was there ever a call for repentance and turning from evil to the Lord? No, that's not on the agenda. There's a lot of redistribution of this and that. There's a lot of things on the agenda, but it's not being right with God. The unregenerate don't see their need to be right with God. That's something only God can do. But it triumphs all, I should say, it trumps all other concerns. The need for repentance and faith is absolutely primary. For without that, people will perish. That was the message to the people of Judah. Unless you repent and get right with the Lord, you're going to perish. That's what God was saying to them in this text today. Okay, now we see here in verse 17 that ultimately God's glory is at stake. Notice it says, let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? Now here, Joel is calling the priests to intercede for the people of Judah, just as Moses had. Do you remember when Moses was on Sinai with the Lord and the people built the golden calf, Moses interceded as a priest on their behalf. And that's the only way they didn't perish. In the same way now you have the priests are called to do the same thing. They're to intercede on behalf of the people of Judah. Now notice where they called to meet. They're called to meet these priests between the porch and the altar. The simple reason for that is that was the area within the temple that was large enough for the priests to gather, okay? So what Moses is reminding them of is he's reminding them, or excuse me, uh, what Joel is reminding the people of is that just as Moses interceded for the people, the priests are to intercede so that God won't wipe them out. Now, remember when Moses did that in Exodus 32, Moses reminded God that for the sake of his promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for the sake of the fact that God called Israel out to be his own, he shouldn't wipe them out. He should relent of the wrath that he was going to pour upon them. That's the idea of intercession here. Now, the reason I'm laboring this point of the priests in Joel 2.17, who were to intercede on behalf of Judah, just like Moses did, is that that's your role. That's my role. That's the role of Christians today. We know in 1 Peter 2.9, every single believer is part of what's called a royal priesthood. It's a priesthood of every believer. And so what that means then is you and I are to be seen as those who go out into the world. And yes, we preach the gospel and we intercede on behalf of those who are going to perish. That's our job. One of the jobs that we have as priests is to intercede on behalf of those who are perishing. 
we really are, I think, to be portrayed as those who are on a rescue mission. It's as if you and I have been dropped behind enemy lines as paratroopers, and our job is to rescue as many as we can through preaching the gospel, through interceding for the lost in prayer, so that we can bring them to the kingdom of God. It's the same thing that Joel was commanding the priests. The priests in every generation are called to intercede on behalf of the, those who are perishing. Now, the one thing I want to point out here is what's the ultimate goal for the people of Judah to repent and turn back to the Lord? Well, notice it's ultimately for the glory of God. One of the problems is every time Israel would sin, God was faithful to judge them just as he promised in Deuteronomy 28. He said, look, I'll hand you over to your enemies. But when that happened, God knew that the nations would scoff at him. And they would say, well, who is this God of Israel? He's a pushover. Look, we as the Assyrians were able to sack Judah and the northern tribes of Israel. The Babylonians would say the same thing. Look, we took all of Israel into captivity. Who is this God of Israel? And so the fact that the Israelites broke covenant, necessitating that God would hand them over to the enemies, made this question come upon the lips of the pagans. Where is their God? Now, I want you to think about that's ultimately what's at stake when we sin. When we live lives that are not in keeping with what God has called us to, it really puts upon the lips of the pagans the question, who is this God or where is their God? Right? Think about the third commandment, thou shall not bear the Lord's name in vain. Now, oftentimes we associate that commandment with not using the Lord's name as a cuss word, which is, there's, there's partly some truth to that. However, the bigger part of the third commandment is not to live in such a way where you and I are bearing, literally lifting up the name of Yahweh, the name of Christ, but living no differently than the pagans. So that the pagan world looks at us and say, where's their God? Who is this? Who is this Christian? They, this Christian claims to be this, but they live no differently than the rest of us. Their God must not be anything different. That, that's the idea, that sin really does bring reproach upon the name of the Lord. It's false advertising for God. By the way, you see a great uh, portrayal of this and repentance from misusing God's name in Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel acknowledges in this beautiful prayer. To me, it's one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the Bible. He acknowledges, look, we've sinned against you, O God. We've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, but he calls God to remember them and heal them and to forgive them because they bear his name. Dear ones, it's a very significant thing to bear the name of the Lord. Ultimately, what repentance is, is turning from idolatry and turning back to the deeds and doctrines that God has called us to, all for the sake of his glory. That's what Joel is reminding the people of God. Don't let the pagans put upon their lips the phrase, where is their God? Or who is this God of Israel? Don't let them even say it. And the same thing applies to us. If we will live lives that are faithful to the doctrines we claim to believe, it brings glory to God. Okay, so let me turn now to talking about the terms for repentance. I want to talk about repentance and faith. One of the issues that I've seen over the years is many Christians have even divided over saying, well, you're saved by faith alone, and then others will say, no, you're, you need to repent. And what I want to show is that repentance and faith really go hand in hand. I want you to get an understanding of what repentance is. They're different, but they go hand in hand. It's like peanut butter and jelly, like Starsky and Hutch, like uh, apple pie and baseball. I don't, I don't know if those go together, but anyway, uh, hot dogs and baseball, they go together. So you can't separate them. They go hand in hand. So I want to talk about the terms for repentance that we see in the Old Testament. We've handled one of them already today. The idea of repentance is often used in the Old Testament for return, repent, turn. The term that's most often used is shoe. Now today we saw that in Joel chapter 2 it was used of the Israelites having to turn back to God, it was also of God turning back to them. Okay, and again, 
his turning back to them was predicated on their turning from their rebellion and returning to him. So sometimes you'll see the term shu. Sometimes you'll see the noun. That was the verb. The noun for repentance is shuva. Okay, so you can see the relationship between the verb shu and the noun shuva. Okay, so the idea of repentance is to turn in thought so that you're no longer going to believe false doctrine and you're going to turn to believe the Yahweh, the, how Yahweh has revealed truth to be. You're going to believe his doctrine. So it's a turning from false doctrine to true doctrine. And it's also a turning from living as the pagans do to living as God has called you to. It's that type of return or repentance. So it's a change again of doctrine and deeds. Now in the New Testament, we have various terms that are used. The first one is repent. That's the verb, meta no eo. Now meta, many of you have heard of metaphysics. Meta is something that's behind the physics. Okay, so metaphysics would often have to do with kind of the supernatural, right? What's behind the physical realm? Well, meta neo can mean that as well. It's what's behind the thought or literally an afterthought. But the way it's actually rendered most often is a change of mind or a change of thinking. That's how it's really used in the New Testament. So repentance, first and foremost, is a change of thinking in the mind of people where their minds were formerly alienated from the doctrines of God. They hated his doctrines and his commands. But all of a sudden, because they've been changed by God, they think that these doctrines of God are good, that there's something good and they should hold to them, they should believe them. That's the kind of change of mind that happens at repentance. But just because you have a change of mind and you say, well, yeah, I believe the doctrines of Christ and his apostles are true, that's not necessarily sufficient. What you have to do also is to turn to say they're for me. I'm going to live according to those things. And that's the doctrine going to the deeds. So yes, it's a change of mind where we repent and say, yes, I was wrong. When I rejected Christ and I was a Buddhist, I was wrong. I'm turning from that. When I used to be an atheist and believed in macroevolution, I'm turning from that. When I used to believe that Muhammad was the prophet of God, I'm turning from that. I'm turning from those false beliefs and I'm coming to Christ and his apostles, what they teach. That's meta no that's repentance. It's a change of our thought life, first and foremost, but it's also a change of our lives. You also see the the, the noun here, meta noyo, or excuse me, meta noia. That is the noun form of the verb, meta no All right, so the noun in the verb, but you also have another term that's often used. Bob has pointed this out oftentimes in Acts, epistrepho. Epistrepho is often the idea of to turn. And it's often synonymous with repentance. Now, let me give you some passages. Bob has talked about these before, but let's hit them again in context with talking about repentance. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts 26, verses 18 through 20. Please turn your Bibles to Acts 26, verses 18 through 20. And what I want you to see is how these terms are used, especially like epistrepho, how it's synonymous with repenting, turning from darkness to light turning from Satan, which would be any other doctrine other than Christ, and turning to God. Notice here, this is Paul, Acts 26, 18 through 20. And he's talking about what he preached. He says, it was to open their eyes so that they may turn, there's epistrepho, from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Notice verse 19, it says, So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent, there's metonao, and turn to, there's epistrepho, to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Wow. Let's focus on the last part of verse 20. Notice repentance and turning to God are synonymous. Notice there's an and there. It says repent and turn to God. Does everyone see that? But don't think that those are two different things. They're synonymous. Repenting and turning to God 
are the same thing. Metonao and epistrepho. But one thing I want you to see at the very end of verse 19, notice it says performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Why is it important that we perform deeds appropriate to repentance? Again, look on the screen. The term metonao has to do with the change of mind. So yes, we're saying, yes, I'm turning from false doctrine, idolatry. What is idolatry? It's any other belief other than biblical Christianity. What's in the Bible? If you turn from the God of the Bible, you're in idolatry. So a change of mind says, I'm not going to be an idolater. I'm turning from false beliefs in my mind, and I accept the beliefs are true of the Bible. Okay, that's the foundational point of metonao. But here Paul says, perform deeds appropriate to repentance. That's why I always say, if you're going to bear fruit in, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, it has to be both in doctrine and in deed. So if we claim to believe the doctrines of Christ, but we never act on them, do we really believe? You see, this is really the point that James is bringing up when he's talking about justification by faith, but a faith that's not dead. Remember, he says faith by itself is dead, right? Faith without works is dead. So there's been a lot of debate over the years as to whether or not Paul or James were teaching two different things. After all, the Apostle Paul labors the point that we're justified by faith alone. But James seems to be saying faith without works is dead. It has to be by works. But all James is doing is he's qualifying what kind of faith saves. It's the faith that leads to works. It leads to actions. It leads to actually obeying the doctrines of Christ. Think of it this way. In Romans chapter 4, Paul alludes to Genesis 15. Remember in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God. It's Genesis 15, 6. He believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Well, James alludes to Genesis 22, where Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. And the point is in Genesis 22, because Abraham really believed, he was willing to obey God. So do you see then what James is saying is, look, faith really leads somewhere it leads to obedience and so if you never obey it simply shows that you really never believe that's why the, you have this relationship between faith and obedience doctrine and deeds and repentance now there's another term i want to talk about i don't have it on the screen here it's called apostrepho apo would be apo and that would have to do with turning away from the faith and turning into a to apostasy, turning away from God. So yes, people can turn from idolatry to God, but they also can turn from God to idolatry and apostasy. Okay, and that would obviously be for those who never really did believe to begin with. But a great passage that shows us is turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy 4.4. 4. I want you to see how apostrepho is used, not epistrepho. Uh, if you look on the screen, apostrepho would be A-P-O if you're to transliterate it. And again, that would be turning away. I, the idea would be turning away from the faith. So turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. Again, 2 Timothy 4, 4. Please turn your Bibles there. I hope you've turned to 2 Timothy 4, 4. Notice what it says here. Paul says, and he will turn away. Excuse me, and this is what the unregenerate do. They will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Okay, so does everyone see this turning away, it's turning away from the truth, instead turning to myths and to idolatry. That's apostrepho. So again, that would show that epistrepho is to turn from myths and idolatry and turning to God. That's epistrepho. Apostrepho is to turn from the truth back to the law. All right, so those are the terms that are used. Now, what I want you to see is the relationship between faith and repentance. What I want you to see, if you've repented, you're turning from unbelief and you're turning to faith in Christ. Okay, let me show you some examples of this. Let's see, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. So think of it this way. You have a coin that's like a quarter. All right, so on the one side you have heads, that's faith. On the other side you have tails, that's repentance. So if you have the one coin, you have both. If you're turning from sin, 
you're turning to faith. And if you have faith, it's because you've turned from sin. You've turned from idolatry. All right. Second point, those who believe have turned from unbelief. That's the idea. All right. They go hand in hand. It's peanut butter jelly. You can't have one without the other. Right. So let's look at this, how it's used together. Mark 1.15, this is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Notice how he begins. He begins with a bang. He, 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 does, he puts his cards right on the table. Mark 1.15, he begins saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, why does he say the kingdom of God is at hand? Because in Jesus' first coming, the kingdom of God is something that is now brought to imminence. It's something that will break forth at any time after his first advent is over. So the king is the one who brings the kingdom to be at hand. And so the beginning of his message, what does he command every person to do? It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Repent and believe. Repentance is turning from idolatry to God on his terms. What are God's terms? Notice on the screen, believing in Jesus Christ. Now, why does he say believe in the gospel? The gospel is good news. The good news is the person and work of Christ, who he is, what he did, why we need him, and how we receive him. We're to believe in the person and work of Christ. That's the gospel in the New Testament. The gospel isn't the good news that the Vikings have a good team this year or that the Maybe this pandemic is almost over, whatever. No, the good news is specific, the gospel in the Bible. It has to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, the reason I'm laboring that is oftentimes I'll hear teachers talk about, well, there's many different gospels, and gospel just means good news. But in the context of the New Testament, we have to be careful because the good news is about the person and work of Christ. It's not just generically good news. Hey, you won uh, the, the lottery. Uh, your car doesn't need to be fixed or your dog doesn't have to go to the vet. That's maybe all good news, but it's not the good news of the gospel in the Bible. The good news of the New Testament is in the person of Christ, who is truly God and truly man. And all that en that encompasses is eternality, the, his hypostatic union, all the doctrines of Christ, who he is and what he did and what he's going to do. So it's his person and his work. That's the good news. Now, why is the good news good news? Because of our bad news. The bad news revealed in the Bible is that we're under the wrath of God, just as Joel was preaching to the people. The northern army's coming. What I'm claiming and you're claiming as believers in Christ is that there's a greater judgment coming in the future. It's even going to be worse than the people of Judah experienced. But what's the good news? The person and work of Christ. Okay, so drill in your head. What's the gospel? The person and work of of Christ. So when you're believing, you're believing in the person and work of Christ. And what do you do? You're repenting from unbelief. You're turning from idolatry. Any other system, what, it, it could be atheism. It could be Buddhism. It could be pantheism. It could be Hinduism. It, whatever it is, you're a Hare Krishna. Turn from that. Turn, repent. Turn from that and what? Believe in the good news of who Christ is and what he did. That's the idea that we see in the scriptures. Now, let me show you some other imagery that we see in the scriptures, how they're put together. Here's Acts 20, verse 21. Here's Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And he's talking about what he preached, that he was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how they're put together. Repentance is repenting away from idolatry to God. And if you come to God on his terms, you're coming to faith in what? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's the idea. Now, I want to put another piece together. Let's look at the sermon that Peter gave at Pentecost. Here's Peter's sermon at Pentecost. What's his conclusion? What should everybody do in light of who Christ is? Well, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I want you to think about here is we're going to have a baptism today. Nancy Mary Hart is going to be baptized. Well, why is she going to be baptized? Because she is one who what? Repented. She repented. She turned from idolatry. And by implication, she came to faith. So repentance implies faith. So it's those who repent and believe are what? They're baptized. Why? Because baptism, yes, it symbolizes the remission of sins. 
Yes, it symbolizes regeneration. Yes, it symbolizes the burial and resurrection with Christ. But when you put it all together, what baptism is, it's identity. You're with Christ. And there's no going back to the old world. Noah and his family, they had the old world washed away. And they couldn't go back to it even if they wanted to. We see that, yes, Noah and his family were in a baptism according to Peter in 1 Peter 3. According to Acts, excuse me, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that Israel had a form of baptism, that they were baptized through the Red Sea with Moses. In other words, they couldn't go back to Israel even, or excuse me, Israel could not go back to Egypt even if they wanted to. Why? Because it was washed away. They couldn't go back through the waters. The old world is done. You're with Christ. That's what baptism symbolizes. There's no going back. You're with him forevermore. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, because he identifies with us. He certainly didn't need regeneration. He didn't need remission of sins. What he was doing is he was identifying with us. When you and I are baptized, we're identifying with him. We're with Christ. There's no going back to the old world. Who does that belong to? Well, those who repent and believe. And again, you can use repent or you can use believe because why? They're synonymous. You can't have one without the other. All right. Now let's keep moving for the sake of time. And I'll open up to some questions here at the end. Faith and repentance. Acts 2.41. It says, so then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now notice here, the idea of believing is termed received his word. Okay. Now the term received there, apodecami, means to warmly welcome. It means to warmly welcome the word that was preached. Okay, so the idea of warmly welcoming something means, hey, I believe that. So notice here, the receiving, as I'll show you later in, in John 1.12, is synonymous with believing. Now, one of the reasons I want to hit this is because I've seen many times a zeal that Christians have rightly because they're so afraid of the seeker-sensitive movement and the damage that it's done. They, they will say, well, you can't use the term receive because the seeker-sensitive movement uses receive Christ. And therefore, we shouldn't ever use it. Well, I just want you to realize that the Bible does use synonymous terms. It uses synonyms. And receiving the word, warmly welcoming it here, is synonymous with believing it. Okay? So here's what I would recommend. When we talk about the gospel, if we're going to use like a term like receive, we just explain what it means. To receive the words means that we warmly welcome it, meaning we believe it. It's for us. We believe that Jesus Christ is who he is. We believe what he has done and what he's going to do for us. That's what it means to receive his word. Therefore, this is synonymous with believing what happened to them. They were baptized. And notice how many came to faith, 3,000. Remember the first Pentecost, the giving of the law? You read about this, by the way, in Exodus 32, 28. Yes, I got it in my notes. Exodus 32, 28, first Pentecost, giving of the law, 3,000 perish. Here, the giving of the spirit, 3,000 come to eternal life. That's the profundity of scripture. All right. Now, let me keep moving on for the sake of time. Acts 8, 12. Notice here is Philip. He's preaching to the Samaritans. It says of the Samaritans, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news, there's the gospel about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So notice what happened. They believed and what happened, they were being baptized. Now, Believe there is synonymous with receiving the word. So receiving the word is synonymous with believing, and believing is synonymous, if we back up, to repenting. So if you repent, you're receiving his word. If you receive his word, you're also believing. And if you're believing, you're obviously still one who's repented. Okay, I just want you to see that all these terms can be used synonymously. They don't mean the same thing. Believing is different than repenting, but they go hand in hand. Those who are baptized were those who believe. Okay, let me show you another one. Here's Acts 16, very important one, 14 through 15. Here's the woman Lydia. Her and her family came to faith. Notice what it says. It says, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household and when she and her household have been baptized, it goes on to talk about some things. I didn't fit it all on the screen. But I want you to see here that she responded 
Why did she respond? Because the Lord opened her heart. So here we see that faith is something that was given to her by God. And the responding to the things spoken by Paul is synonymous with faith. And therefore, what happened? Well, she was baptized. Okay, in fact, she and her household. Now, one thing I want to point out is this passage is used by the Reformed to try to prove infant baptism. And what they'll point out is, well, the whole household was baptized. Therefore, there must have been infants. And therefore, infants must be baptized. Well, I want you to realize that that's not logically coherent because there's no inference here that there were infants within the household. That's just being inferred or simply read into the text. In fact, I want you to turn your Bibles a little bit later in Acts. You're going to see another household of the Philippian jailer that's baptized. And you're going to see clearly that the entire family heard and believed the word. So turn your Bibles to Acts 16, verses 31 through 34. Because I want you to see that the household implied, I think, believed. They received and responded to the things spoken by Paul. And therefore, they were baptized. But again, it's not stated. All right, so if I were to argue the position for believers' baptism is what we believe, I wouldn't use this text because it's not stated that the whole family believed. But I'll show you one that does a little bit later. Acts 16, 31 through 34. Turn your Bibles there. Acts chapter 16, verses 31 through 34. Paul and Silas here are preaching. Here's the Philippian jailer. Notice what it says, Acts 16, 31 through 34. It says, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Notice verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Stop there. Notice according to Acts 16, 32, implied is this family, this household is old enough to hear the word and therefore believe the word. Notice verse 33. It says, and he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized. He and all his household just stop there. Why was his whole household baptized? Well, because they believed. Notice, as it says in Acts 16, verse 14, they responded to the things spoken by Paul as well. Okay, so here's my point. We at Gospel of Grace Fellowship, we teach believers baptism. Because what we see throughout the scriptures is that when someone believes, they are baptized. Baptism does not save you. In fact, what the Reformed will often appeal to is Colossians chapter 2, where they try to see a link between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. The problem with them appealing to that is that in the Old Testament, circumcision certainly was done on eight-day-old babies. But in Colossians chapter 2, the circumcision that's being referred to is referred to as a circumcision without hands. In the book of Acts, especially, something done with hands is something that's evil or deficient. Remember, you have Stephen say that the Lord doesn't dwell in houses built with human hands. He talks about how the, Israel, the Israelites in the past when they were sinning, they sinned with their hands, that is, crafting idols with their hands. Okay, so a circumcision without hands is circumcision of the heart that only God can do. So whatever circumcision Paul is talking about in Colossians 2, it's not physical circumcision. Therefore, there's no relationship that can be proven in Scripture between circumcision and baptism. No, baptism is to be done for those who believe. Let me leave you with this, and I'll open it up to some questions and comments. I want you to see that repentance and faith is a gift from God. Notice John 1, 12 through 13. He said, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Stop there. Notice those who received him are those who believe in his name. They're synonymous. So don't beat somebody over the head if they have a track that says we have to receive Christ. Yes, it should be explained what that means. But don't think that that's automatic heretical because the Bible uses that term. Okay, the term here received actually is lambano. Okay, so as many as received him is synonymous with believing in his name. All right. Now, notice how did they believe in his name? Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. How can John be any clearer that our being able to believe, our being born, wasn't of anything that man does? It's not of blood. That's mankind. It's not of the will of the flesh, mankind, nor of the will of man, mankind 
but strong contrastive conjunction of God. If you believed, if you received him, if you were repented, if you came to Christ, it's because you were born of God. God gives you the ability to believe. We see the same thing in Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard Paul's message, it says they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. How many believed? Well, those who were appointed to. Those who were appointed to believe were the ones who believed the gospel. So yes, faith and repentance go hand in hand. They're always seen as a gift from God. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, Paul says, that the teacher has to be one who can correct gently because perhaps God may grant them repentance. Dear ones, faith and repentance go hand in hand. It's those who believe are those who are baptized, and all of it is seen as a gift of God. Now, with that, let me shut up, and I'll open it up to you for a few minutes here and talk some questions and comments or ideas that you have. We only, uh, Eric, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. We only got one minute left here. Oh, I'm sorry. No I problem. Don't, have a don't be sorry. It's great teaching. But let me ask you a question I know is pertinent. Yeah. Many books were written about it. Uh, John MacArthur was accused of teaching salvation by works because he taught the very thing that you're teaching now. Right. And there are, and I still get emails from people rebuking me for um, thinking the same way. In other words, if you teach repentance for salvation, you're teaching salvation by works. Could you respond? Yeah, you know, and that's one of the reasons I even wrote what I did here is I want you people to see that repentance and faith, again, go hand in hand. Repentance is never seen as a work, but rather a response to God from the heart. And again, when we repent, we're repenting from unbelief and to faith. And so we have to see those go hand in hand together. So repentance is something that is granted by God, as I just mentioned in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. What happened is these hyper dispensationalists like Les Feldick and others try to claim that there's two different gospels, one that's been given by Paul, and then there's the one that was preached by Christ. And one is a, a message of repentance, the one that's preached by Christ, and the other one is given by Paul, and it's by faith alone. The, the simple fact is when you look at the data, that doesn't wash. Faith and repentance are always go hand in hand. Paul and Peter both use the terms interchangeably. And so repentance and faith, that you, you can't divorce the two. If you believe, it's because you repented. And if you repented, you're repenting from unbelief to faith. So the, the answer is that when you look at the data, it just doesn't wash what people are claiming. They're trying to make distinctions that aren't biblical. They're not rightly dividing the word, as it were. Thank you. I, obviously, that's, that's the answer. Yeah, but there, those people are out there. They're very zealous, and yeah. they attack people viciously because I've been the target of that attack. Yeah. yeah, thanks for standing for the truth, too. And, and by the way, Bob, point out those articles that you responded. Um, I read those years ago when you took on Les Feldick and those guys in uh, Critical Issues Commentary. Um, I would have, I don't know the number because I have I have like 138 right. numbers. <laughs> but I mean, it's in there. I, they could it's called uh, Hyper-Dispensationalism and the Authority of Christ or something like that. Yeah. And I'm refuting the idea that there's two different Gospels. Amen. Those people who teach that claim the Gospels are not for the church, they're for the Jews. Right. That the Gospel of, uh, that Paul preached, they have various ideas when it came around. Some say at the very end of Acts. Some say after Acts. But that there's a different Gospel in Acts. Yeah. And so they basically push Acts and the Gospels into some other uh, dispensation. And then you right. have Paul. And then they're truncating Paul to claim that Paul's belief in faith was just mental assent to facts about Jesus. Wow. And so they'd say the only thing that's really the Gospel is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Wow. And I wow. still get emails from them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 
I think yeah. the data doesn't bear that out. It's a pernicious gospel. It harms the flock. Yeah. It creates a sect of people that think they know better than everybody else. Right. They won't fellowship with the rest of us Christians. Yeah. And I have warned about it and received uh, a lot of uh, negative attacks because of issuing that warning. But we're not going to back down because I think, thank you for pointing this out. I looked up that decomai myself. Yeah. It means to welcome. And Paul's the one who said the ones that aren't saved, the ones that don't welcome decomai, the love of the truth. Amen. amen. So thank you. And so I say yeah, amen you, Bob. to what you've taught. Let's close in prayer. I'll close us. Thank you, Lord, for Eric and the teaching he's brought to us from Joel and from Acts. And may we be um, clear and forthright in our presentation of your gospel and help us to have a tender heart that would be willing to hear the word and repent and trust you and walk in ways that are pleasing to you. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.